Last week, we talked about unintelligent and subsentient creatures. And I got to thinking of other subsentient things, my players, who take feats like observant and keen mind. And I want you to tell me, Adam, in your opinion, what's better, observant or keen mind? Um, observant. Observant? Why? Okay, so keen mind. Let's, let's, what do they do each individually? Okay, so, so keen mind increases your intelligence by one to a maximum of 20. You always know which way is north. You always know the number of hours left before sunrise or sunset. And you can accurately recall anything you've seen or heard within the past month. This, to me, is useful for scout-type rogues yep. and rangers. Maybe a druid. Yeah, and I, I feel like the druid would just automatically know that anyway with a good nature check. Yeah. I don't see this as being that useful. If you need that plus one bump to intelligence because you're playing an inquisitive rogue... But my inquisitive rogue doesn't need to know which way is north. I'm burning bullet points on this. The, the big thing about Keen Mind is the remember in detail anything that's happened within the past month. Sure. This has just been a way for players to piss off DMs. No, I will tell you outright. You remember that it was this, this, this. Yeah. I just, I will tell you what happened, but I'm not going to quote what happened before because yeah. you remember these points. Yeah. Okay. But when it comes to observant, you get to choose intelligence or wisdom, which one you want, you want to go up by one. Uh, and, uh, if you can see a creature's mouth while it's speaking a language that you understand, you know what it's saying by reading its lips. Okay. In That's infinitely cool. more useful than knowing how many hours are left till sunrise. Okay. And you have a plus five bonus to passive perception and passive investigation. Every oh, yeah. rogue is going to pick that up before they pick up keen mind. Yeah. Every ranger is too, right? Observant is just a better feat. I would agree. Keen mind gets bumped up there quite a lot with that eidetic memory aspect of it. But uh, in my opinion, I'm with you. Observant all the way. It's a Mimic, the roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our discussion on how to run monsters in Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. We spent the last half year in COVID isolation reaching out to our friends from around North America, so that we could break down the humanoids in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition that make up the various hordes, mobs, tribes, hosts, armies, houses, cults, packs, and warbands. I'm Adam, and with me today is Dan, and this episode is called Intelligent Enemies, Didactic, Climactic, and Cinematic Tactics. And despite my best efforts, I couldn't work the word lactic into the title, and I apologize for failing you all. I'm still impressed. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the general tactics and strategies that Dungeon Masters should use while running intelligent creatures in D&D 5th edition. We've previously covered a whole whack of humanoids in our mob mentality episodes, and we're systematically working through the playable races in our playable race episodes, so we feel like we have these strategies and details pretty well covered, so any discussion on humanoids will be by the broad strokes. If you're looking for insights on villains and big bad evil guys, check out our episode on villains, as well as the campaign builder episode, where Dan and I take a closer look at how we design the bosses in a campaign. Also, we do pretty frequent dives into dragons in our dragon episodes, and our portfolios conversation has already gone over beholders, and we'll look at illithids, giants, and hags as we move forward. So, our discussions about these special set-piece monsters is going to be general in this episode as well. We don't know what app you're listening on, but if you'd like to go back and check out one of these episodes, we have an episode guide on our subreddit, r slash it's a mimic, and our YouTube channel has our library broken down into helpful playlists. So, enough about what we aren't covering in this episode. What are we actually jumping into? Well, Dan and I are going to combine our decades of experience and hit you with the general tactics we use when we prep our sentient creatures for a fight in our D&D sessions. And remember, sentience is anything with an intelligence score of 5 or higher, according to Tales from the Yawning Portal. There are hundreds of these guys, so we're going to use the broad strokes here 
When it comes to any monster, it's important to not just read their traits and actions, but also look at the stats themselves and the flavor text provided, because I know half of you don't read it, <laughs> so you can dig a little deeper into their motivations and their tactics. So, Dan, I want to talk to you, before we get started, about the idea of intelligence in the first place. Sure. Okay, okay. everybody looks at, oh, a wizard has a 20 intelligence and they're super brilliant, a barbarian has an 8 intelligence and they're borderline handicapped. What's the reality with intelligence? How do you actually play this out if you were to compare it to, let's say, the real world? So, I think intelligence, as with every other main of the six stat blocks, has a bit of a misunderstanding to it that is generally out there. D&D 5th edition isn't a base 10 stat block. 10 is your upper edge of average, but it's not where that base average is. Eight is. That is why we see with a lot of DCs, it's eight plus, you know, this plus proficiency modifier or whatever it is, right? So when you're looking at your stats, eight to 10 is going to be your most average block, right? Beyond that, a 12, although it is only a plus one, is still skilled. It is still better than average. When you look at 14, that's Someone who's talented in that realm, which is skill plus a little bit of innate oomph. 16 is someone who's remarkable. 18 is someone who's generational. And 20 is nigh mythical level capability in that stat. So if your wizard is walking around with 18 to 20 int, he is by far the smartest person in the room, save maybe one demi-lich. Or an illithid, some outside of reality aberration. Us here around this table, we don't possess as average everyday commoners more than a fourteen in int, and and, I, and we think we have something. To honestly, say about this I think game. a college professor uh, professor is going to have what a sixteen. Yeah. He's got a plus three, right? Th- and that's that's good. That's extremely well read. There's a reason why your base standard stat race the top stats of fifteen before racial bonuses. So, friends, don't don't look at your, you know, 14-inch rogue as being the dumbest person in the party or average. Well, okay, go the other direction then, down to, uh, down to 5. Okay. I look at, like, if 8 is the low end of average, you have 6 and 7 is going to be just below average. I mean, you could function. You could have a normal, everyday conversation. Your, your vocabulary might be a little stunted, but you're fine. Five and six, that is where conversation starts getting stunted. That is where you have a very basic level of intellect, right? Very basic vocabulary. You're using one or two syllable words, maybe the odd third, and you're super proud of yourself when you do. They're young children. Not not, not like still learning to speak, but your six to eight-year-olds are down there. right? Right. And then your three and four... You understand, but you might not be able to fully grasp communication, right? That is your toddlers. Oh, right. No, it's it's even less than that. These are your um, gorillas. Yeah. Right. Like we are talking, they will never have the ability to hold a full conversation. They may be able to ape the noises you are making. Hey. But but that's it. (laughs) That's as far as it can go. I mean, and you look at the intelligence that is attributed to things like ravens. And baboons yep. and um and I think there's even a pig stat block in one of the books as well. These are not smart creatures, not by a damn sight. That's why like you see a lot of them have like a two. <laughs> like you you have you have enough intelligence to be able to tell your lungs to breathe in and out regularly. Yeah, for me in my head, uh, a worm has a one. 
A tiger has a three int. A vulture has a two. Yeah, okay, so a cat has a three, right? Like, we do not have a whole lot going on. Your ooze is going to have a one. I, I miss the blanks and the zeros from previous editions. I, I, I do. I just know that when you hit zero, you're dead, right? Like in fifth edition. So when I think of, of the cat, it's got a level, or it's got an intelligence of three, right? Yeah. And cats are pretty damn smart. They're smart enough to give you attitude, right? <laughs> yeah. So we are talking low intelligent creatures below a five, but even five is sentient enough to understand its own existence, mm-hmm. but not enough to contemplate it. <laughs> right? They're yeah. not sitting there asking big... You're never going to find a hill giant having an existential crisis. Uh, no, no. At least not of its own making, right? Like, I, I could see one having that level of crisis because a bard came up and on purpose gave it one. Sure, yeah. It, but it's not going to come to these conclusions by themselves. Yeah. Remember that intelligence is not necessarily the accurate word. It's education. Mm-hmm. Just the same way that wisdom is not really wisdom, it's awareness. Yeah. And charisma is, for lack of a better word, psychology. Sure, yeah. Right? They're not the same things that they used to be in previous editions, although we still have these labels that we're bringing over, right? So, let's look at actual intelligent creatures, things that have a basic level of education. And remember that education doesn't have to be formal education. It can be passed down from previous generations by word of mouth. Basic, simplistic runes, like you're going to see gnolls, will have a base level of intelligence that is higher than five. Yeah. Right? Um, And so the limitations often of the society or the upbringing are going to dictate the level of intelligence. And I wonder, some of these low intelligent creatures, do they have the ability to have higher intelligence if you were to put them in a water deep scenario? Mm. Probably, Probably not too much higher. But they may be able to go up by one or two points. Yeah, I mean, they're they're going to be the 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 smartest one in their clan, but that's not going to be saying very much. Yeah, they're going to have an eleven instead of a ten, but it's still a plus zero, right? Yeah. So when we're dealing with combatants specifically, intelligent combatants, I want to go over kind of the general rules that we use for how these these creatures will operate. And remember, it's not just humanoids. There are all sorts of intelligent creatures out there. Yeah. So we're going to think outside the box a little bit on this, but let's roll initiative. Sure. And then I've got a handful of questions. I got a four. I got a three. Man, you're killing me. Okay, so first and foremost, when you think of an intelligent creature and you think of their motivation, what's the first thing that comes to mind? <sighs> Honestly, it, it you get a little bit of analysis paralysis when you, when you start thinking of what an intelligence creature wants. There's anything under the sun can really motivate them. Well, we said in the last episode that they fuck, fight, or flee, right? right? Like, So when I think of an intelligence creature, a lot of their motivation is going to come from either a desire for more power or a desire to survive. And everything's going to branch down from there. Whether it's gaining more money or more magical power or a certain item or status or reputation, all that is in, in some way, shape, or form can be conceived as power. So whenever you're dealing with an intelligent creature, being able to apply their power struggle wherever they are, their desires for power, is going to make them that much more manipulatable. I I, want to expand on that just a little bit and say that power is not necessarily, you know, um, the idea of like a king or a priest. dominance over something. That's not what it is. It is, I mean, you think about the power that we, as, as human beings in the Western world, the things that we look for, our power is convenience. Yep. Comfort. Right? The power to sit in a comfortable chair and not on a hard ground. 
right? That is something that our ancestors didn't necessarily have. And we have scraped and clawed. If you see somebody sitting on a milk crate in the middle of the living room, you go, oh shit, that is a low class, low status, low power person, right? At this point, I would like to draw everyone's attention to the donate button on the It's a Mimic website. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sick and tired of sitting on a milk crate in our guild house here. So. This microphone has a gerbil that runs uh, uh, around in a wheel. Like, its name is Brad. Um, so, oh no, that's where we got the gerbil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He squeezed it out. So actually, that brings me to my, my the first thing that I think about actually is um, relationships. Sure. You are going to have more complex relationships than um, your low non-sentient level creatures are going to have. For example, you will not necessarily have a, um, a tiger hunting you down across different countries and whatnot because you killed its mate. It may remember you, but when you're out of sight and it can't sense you anymore, it will return back to its territory. Sure. But you will straight up count of Monte Cristo shit when you have some intelligence, right? Like, you can be out for vengeance upon someone who has slighted you. But on the flip side, you can go full Strahd von... Zerovich. Thank you. That's the one. It's been so long since I've played Curse of Strahd. I'm like, hold on. Holy shit. Wait, that was I mean, a blank. Have, have you been resistant to wizards constantly shoving that fucking module down our throats? I'm going to... Hold on. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. I recently discovered it takes them between two years and, and 18 months to actually produce a product. I think this whole revamp, which is my favorite pun, the whole revamped box set was to gear up interest towards this new Ravenloft the, book. The, the Von Richtenstein? No, not, not at all. Well, no, it's Von Richtenstein's guide to... Van Richten? Oh, yeah, sure. No, it's Richtenstein. Apparently. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's Richtenstein. Anyway, the... Nice. Nice. Yeah, I so, like that. Yeah. Um, no, the the idea that there is um, this uh, long-lost love that becomes a motivation, right? Yeah. We can understand as intelligent creatures the idea of loss. And when I start to get to the intelligent 19 and 20, right, these guys are seeing things in the broad schemes the way that we can never really understand. Their God-level awareness. Yeah. So their motivations are going to be by the broad strokes. They're sitting there worried about the survival of not just like me and my family or even my kingdom, but the world or the general ideals of we need to keep chivalry alive yeah, or, yeah. or prayer needs to be a factor. So we need to put the fear of gods literally into people. Their motivations are a little bit more more hefty than that. Yeah. So from a meta frame of mind, when you are looking at running intelligent creatures, often the stat block is going to be the thing that is going to help you the least, I find. You'll be able to see that they are smart. But, but there's that, nothing else. There's there. nothing else there, right? Um, I know that there are some monsters that get some special abilities that might help and impact that. But for the most part, their stat blocks aren't going to help. So... There are two things to look at when I want to figure out the motivation of an intelligent creature outside of the stat block. And that is going to be, one, the flavor text. We mentioned it before. We're mentioning it again now. Looking at the flavor text to figure out what these guys' motivation is, a lot of times is going to really help. Every single monster has a little block, or at least the general category of that monster has a little block that will help you inform that. Yeah, hold on. Before we get into the next thing, though, I want to say when you're running modules, oftentimes you aren't given that upfront. 
You have to read ahead in the books to figure out different NPC motivations, and that can be super frustrating. Especially since they've written a lot of these uh, modules to be super sandboxy. Yeah. Um, like I think of the Tomb of Annihilations and, and the Icewind Dales, right? Where it's just like, go out and explore the wilderness for a while, and then you're going to come across this one dude, and he's got a lot of lore, but we're just going to surprise you with it now. If you don't do your due diligence, you're doing yourself a disservice when it comes to those guys. But the second thing I look at, funny enough, is character art. Even if I'm putting an NPC in the world, and it's either a you know face or a foil to the party, whatever that is, I want it to be a uh, memorable enough character art, and the character art will help me define what their personality, their attitude, their motivation is, right? The If the character art has a bunch of scrolls on him, or a bunch of potions, or has a dirty and unkempt look, I know what this guy's motivation is going to be moving forward, right? Um, and... When I'm running intelligent monsters, looking at their character art will help inform why they are smart, why they are um, the way that they are. Right? That's one of my big gripes about the dragon art is they don't look as smart as they are in yes. the artwork. They look they look statuesque or ferocious. Yeah, you know, there's it's one or the other. Yeah. And I really think that a white dragon is still smarter than you are. Yeah. Okay, so. It's funny when I when I look for my inspiration and whatnot, um, I don't look at the artwork because I find that it's kind of nonsense garbage. Okay. Um, a, a lot of the time, either you get the one still image in you know out of the book, or you get a, a character art that you're pulling off from online. Yeah. At which point, if I've got the entire internet to pull artwork off of. I'm just trying to find the thing that I'm already matching in my head anyway, so this is not helping me. <laughs> and the thing in the book is how it's the very base level one image that they give me. They're like, hey, here is, it's it's like saying, oh, uh, hi, meet my friend Dan. Dan is a nerd. And that's the first point, And that's also the last point, right? And that yeah. doesn't cover nearly the complex person that you are. So I actually turn to movies and television. Who okay. are the smartest people in movies and television? The ones that outthink and are constantly plotting and not necessarily your Hannibal Lecters, although that's something you can do. Um, but I look at uh, the Olena Tyrell. Right? Yeah, okay. She was brilliant. She played the long game. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are different people out there that are just, it's not about being innately smart. It is about how they apply it as well. And so my motivations that I'm looking for are really about what I'm going to present my party in what order. To slowly reveal the bigger plan that sure. is there. Because I don't want to say the whole plan up front because that ruins the surprise. But I also don't want them to feel like I'm I'm pulling the wool over their eyes from the beginning. So I will often have smaller lieutenants and whatnot come in with only part of the information. Which is why I like to use the general captains, lieutenants, yeah, yeah. foot soldiers level. So that every tier that you go through as you're gearing up to your big bad guy, you're getting smarter, more complex parts of the plan and whatnot. So I know the plan ahead of time. I do it way ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And it's usually something simple like revenge. But how are they going to do it? Well, they're going to set up this king to make this maneuver against this dragon who is going to be an ally of this demi-lich that has gone missing because of the... and And I will start to pull these plot threads together to slowly unveil it. I find they do that in some of the modules, and I like that a lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Not knowing the end game from the beginning as a player is great, and it shows the idea of forethought, and that mimics intelligence as, when I, you're when you're playing. As right? much as I like to shit on Curse of Strahd, uh, they wrote Strahd very well in that specific regard. That guy's got a plan, and he's got a thousand-mile view. 
He is smarter and is outthinking you every step of the way. All right. Well, speaking of Captain Collar himself, let's talk about fanaticism. Okay. All right. How badly do these intelligent creatures want it? Does, does the idea of commitment come into play for you for intelligent creatures? Because you know what you get with the dumb creatures. Mm-hmm. A, a dog's level of commitment is really like out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. How much of this idea of um, of commitment and dedication should inform your NPCs? Um, it, I mean, all of it, I find. like, uh, But people play it one note. I will fight to the death. No. Uh, intelligence, honestly, it depends on their interaction with the party in the past. Right. If, if they, if they've got any sort of vendetta specifically against the party, like the party killed blank or did blank, right? That's going to inform how fervent this NPC or monster is toward their goal. Also, their class, and I don't mean like, are they a fighter or are they a barbarian? I mean, their class in life will help feed their ambition. Their station. Their station, right? Um, whether it's military where it's like, well, if I kill you, I know I'll get rewarded by the general and I might become a captain. So I'm going to take you out. But I also know if you kill me, I'm not getting promoted. I'll be dead. So no. Right. Um, understanding that will help. Those of lower classes are going to be far more desperate than those of higher classes. I also think that, that the, um, I, I don't want to say lower class, but you're right. When it comes to intelligent creatures, the the ones that have less are also going to be the more economical. Sure, yeah. You will be able to goad a noble into a duel to the death. You're not going to be able to goad the street urchin into it. They're going to say, sure, okay. And they're just going to pick your pocket while you're trying to stab them. And then they're going to fuck off. Yeah, right? like, yeah. So there are different... And it's not that they're dishonorable. It's just that, why am I doing this? I'm not saving face for anything. This mm-hmm. is not the honor of my house. There is no honor of my house. Here we go. Yeah. Right? But I look at some of the intelligent creatures. Let's get away from humanoids for, okay. a, for a moment here. When you look at things like... I know I mentioned manticores last week. Yeah. Right? That's always the one that, to stand out to me as being an intelligent creature that's not... That's not a humanoid because it's a freaking manticore, but yeah. it can have a conversation with you. But even like stone giants and these, these more fantastical kind of creatures, some of these uh, like uh, Modrons and Obelixes and one, whatnot, when you start to look at these creatures, they're not there for the fanaticism. Uh, I, I How many of them are going to fight to the goddamn death? I, I, I honestly think that we mentioned it earlier with the idea that they're motivated by the power of survival. Right. Yep. And depending on which of those two your monster or your NPC falls under, that's going to inform. If they're there for power, I think they're far more likely to fight to the death than they're if they're there for their survival. Right? You think so? Oh, yes, 100%. Well, other than survival means living. So, yeah, they're not going to want to fight to the death. And they're going to be aware of where when they're outmatched and get out as soon as they can with as little damage as possible to them. But... Um, those who crave power are also going to be the ones that are, like you said, easily goaded into the fight or, uh, easily incensed into a rage that removes that preservation instinct. You can play it like that, but I mean, some of them, you're not going to goad Littlefinger into a fight. You won't goad Littlefinger himself into a fight, but you will goad Littlefinger into responding to you in a fight in some way, shape or form. He will get someone else to fight for him, right? And he may tip his hand as a result of that. That's right? what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I find intelligent creatures, and, and l- let's use the manticore because it's a great example. 
A manticore falls under the survival. They're not there for power. No, that's right. Right? So they're going to fight you if you're in their zone or or if you've slighted them in some way. You stole a kill or you are carrying one of their young. Do manticore lay eggs? Are they eggs, manticore eggs, or are they young? Dude, they're lion-based. They're, they're live birds. Okay, okay. So you, you've got like a manticore young and they're hunting you down for that. They're not going to fight to the death. They're not. A manticore might kill its young so that you don't get it. And I'll make more later. But it's not going to kill you so that it is got a higher position in life in one way, shape, or form. Right? I, I don't see a manticore doing that. But its power could be something like expanding its own territory or its hunting grounds. Yeah. It yeah. could also be trying to send a warning to other nearby creatures to stay out yep. by displaying your corpse. Right? Like laying claim is a form of power as well. So when it comes to this idea of... I, I call it fanaticism in my head just because I want to know how far down that road... I look at the average town guard. Mm-hmm. I look at your average method who has an intelligence of nine, right? And I'm like, these guys aren't fighting to the death. They will harass. But at some point, you are going to knock it down to, let's say, a quarter of its remaining hit points. And then and then you're going to level a crossbow in its face and it's going to say, you know what? I'm done. This is not worth dying over. Yeah, okay. And that is really something to think about with the motivations. Not just what they want, but how badly they want it. The next question that I ask is, why now? Why here? Mm -hmm. Why with these people? Will they engage? And if so, are they are they picking and choosing their time? Right? Assassins will pick and choose their time, and they will definitely engage. Yeah. But your average intelligent creature, your um, your Magman, I'm all I'm on M monsters apparently Apparently, this week. Yeah. So, but intelligent enough, but will they bother to engage? And this is why the motivation is so important, right? And, and the idea of how badly do they want it. When you start to think about the if and or slash when to get into the fight. I'm thinking combat specifically. Yeah. Although yeah. this will also color your flavor for um for a lot of social encounters as well. What do you think about... Because some a lot of people, especially when they're doing the... um. The modules, you talk to that NPC because the page told you to. Yeah. Because you walked into this room and that NPC is sitting here. But why now? Why here? Do you often look at it that way or are you just throwing in random encounters? Um, I am a big proponent that no random encounter should be truly random. Even encountering a Triceratops in the jungles of Chultz should have reason behind it. If you are just throwing random encounters out there, that is when you get into that hyper tactical mini wargaming type of a fight where you are smashing your numbers against their numbers and hoping your numbers come out ahead. That's not the type of game I like to play. I like to play games where even your most basic low intelligence subsentient creature has that level of motivation to them. Determining when they attack and why, I have a reason, no matter what. If I'm if I'm flipping through a module, I'm I'm currently in the early planning stages of uh, running a Nicewind Dale campaign. I don't know for who, but I'm I'm reading my way through the book. I need to know why the party is going to encounter this, you know, orphaned child or this, you know, random tribe of frost giants walking through the uh, tundra. I need to know these things. I'm the lazy DM, so. I'm often just going to make up a reason that makes sense for that type of monster because I know the monsters. And then I'll make a little note for myself and I will flesh that out later. So a lot of a lot of my planning and prep is after the fact, funny enough. See, I do the planning ahead of time. Yeah. 
And so I have to make it make sense. How many times have you been in one of my campaigns? You're like, oh, I want to go talk to this person. And I said, great, it's 3 a.m. You'll have to wait. You're going to have to do that the next time that they are available. Yeah. And I often play that time game and I push it. Even though you want to deal with it right now. I'm like, oh, do you really want to go knock on their door at, at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. and wake them up? You can, but your persuasion is going to be with disadvantage. Yeah. Right? Or they're, they're not going to want to be a part of this if you do it now. Again, I take it back to the motivation as well. What do they want? If this is the bad timing, if you're in the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time, it's still not 100% right. Yeah. If you're at the right place at the right time, I will give you little boons, little rewards. They may like you a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And that's the level of reward I'm talking. They're not going to be like, oh, I like the cut of your jib. Have yeah. 10 gold. Right? <laughs> like that, That's not what I'm talking about. You're just going to have better um, relationship with them that will slowly build over time. But... The if and when to engage in combat, I, I, strangely enough, I think there's a tipping point. A dog will not get into a fight it can't win unless it's backed into a corner and has no opportunity to, to change it. And yet, every time I drive through downtown on a Friday night, I'm seeing idiots and assholes outside of clubs trying to throw down. Technically more intelligent creatures. <laughs> oh, well, well. <laughs> right? But by the, by the stat block, their intelligence is yep. going to be higher. I feel like your motivations, as they become more complex, they get more muddy, and you may not be more strategic. A lot of the times, for me, uh, a 7 in intelligence will actually be a worse strategist than a 4 in intelligence. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying there. The outside influences on them can help them make worse decisions than the kind of creature that is purely based off survival instincts. Yes. Yeah. Um, I In my head, uh, level 17, or uh, intelligence of 17... Has an ego problem. Yeah. An intelligence of 26 has an ego that is well-deserved, and and it can tell you why. And it's not a problem. It's your problem that it has an ego. (laughs) It it does not have an ego problem. It has an understanding of its capabilities, and its capabilities are massively better than yours. Yeah, whereas a a 17 has had enough successes that they will over or underestimate Mm -hmm. different things. So there is a weird tipping point, and it really depends on the character itself or the type of monster itself that you're going to play with and a lot of times you get bits and pieces of it but it starts to get more difficult when you get into things like the will-o'-wisp has an intelligence of 13 really it is a glowing ball of light well it's basically a, a spirit it is right but it is malevolent and it's going to plan it has the ability to turn that light on and off mm-hmm. it is going to get sneaky it is going to choose when to engage from a very intelligent standpoint as opposed to maybe you're Town guard with an intelligence of 13 knows some good strategy and, and combat, but it's following orders and will do what they are told. Yes. Even if it's dumb. So intelligence doesn't necessarily mean strategist. It, it just means how complex the thought processes can yeah. be. Yeah. So if they're not strategists, what about retreating? We talked about retreating a lot last episode for, for dumb characters. Yeah. Do you think that intelligent creatures are more or less likely to, to retreat? Depends on what they got to lose. I think so. But I mean, a lot of the times life is on the line. When we say murder hobos, we mean it. Even those that aren't murder hobos are killing, killing every orc they come upon. Yeah. This is why we drop the goblin babies as part of the like morality trap, right? That is the trope there, the trap trope for your troop. So the idea here is that they are out there to kill no matter what. You don't have a whole lot of bandits tied up on the side of the road left for the constabulary to come and pick up. Are they eating tripe? (laughs) 
Sorry, I just completely derailed you. Uh, you tripped me up. A oh, little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, now the the thing that that I'm looking at now is how intelligent are intelligent creatures when it comes to retreating. It's it's one of two things. What do they got to lose, or what do they got to gain? Um, they are going to retreat, and they're going to have their own tactics to do it, depending on what kind of creature, what kind of capabilities or uh, items or advantages it has. It's going to go to its uh, its base nature, its base uh, advantages to flee any given situation but it will risk its life if it has a lot to gain and it will risk its life if it has nothing else to lose well even if it has nothing to lose but your your entire side let's let's take an army for example sure and the entire army your side is failing even if you don't have a home to go back to because you got burned to the ground and you've got your standard rogue backstory your family's all been killed and you're an orphan so like you have nothing going on and so much edge you will still retreat. Yeah, because you you value your life and that's what you have left to lose. It's the it I have I honestly have trouble short of cultists, which is why I think they're so popular. Mm-hmm. And gnolls and a handful of others, like a uh, uh, lizard folk render specifically. Sure. Right? So few creatures, in my opinion, will fight to the death. Definitely far less than we on average see at a table. Yeah. I agree with you. But I think it's not quite as narrow of a cast as, you know, just these like small handful of cultists or whatever. I think people can be and monsters can be convinced to risk their life for some greater cause or goal. Right. And and, if, I th- and honestly, I think vengeance is a motivating factor that will get them there real quick. Yep. Vengeance, power, money. All of that is... I just don't see anybody risking their life for money. The reason you want money or power is to be able to wield it. If it if you're going up, if you're sitting there going, hey, you know what? I could be the next prince's advisor and I've set up this whole complicated thing and now I'm facing down two barbarians and a paladin? <laughs> Not fucking worth it, right? That is a lot of power that I could have, uh, but I'm going to live. I, I Honestly, that's going to be the perspective of the of of the the creature. I... We have read the news stories of people getting straight into gunfights and and killing each other just to get into gangs. I think if the desire is great enough to attain, even if it's the the promise of money, it's not even an actual dollar amount. The promise of money or or the concept of having a change in station. Someone will fight to the death for that to get out of where they're at in their life. But do you think they're willing to fight to the death? Or do you think that they're willing to bet that they won't die because they've got the better arsenal with them? You you join a gang for your own protection. To be a part of something bigger because you can't survive it on your own. Yeah. You do what you can to get out of your station, right? And that that's what I'm trying to say is you're going to have some creatures who are just like, I will never go back to that way of life. But talk about in combat, though. Yes, you might be intelligent. You mentioned with the whole, you know, 17... It, could be smarter than a 26 or whatever, yeah. right? Or, or, or a 17 could be dumber than a 14. Sure. Right? Depending on the motivation of that creature, they're going to enter into combat and the threat of death will never cross their minds until it happens. Right? Until it's right in their face. Until it's right in their face and then it's too late. Yeah, and I think that honestly, when you start to hit your 13 and 14 intelligence, you start to deal with creatures that do not, they can comprehend their own death. But it's not real. It's not right in front of them. Also, a lot of cultures in in the real world, as well as what we see inside of D&D, are shame-based. 
And when you start talking about honor or shame or whatever it is, you, because you're fighting for something outside of yourself, there is some greater purpose than yourself that lessens the value of your own life in your eye. This is when we see religious fanaticism and cultist level behavior. And the other thing to keep in mind too is we know for a fact there is an afterlife. Yes. And there are planes of good and evil that people will go to. Yep. And just because there is a hell doesn't mean that people don't want to go there. A lot of times they're hedging their bets to get there. Yeah, I mean... Like that, that Goblins and orcs know where they are going in the afterlife, right? And some of them don't want to go there, right? And they're going to be far more willing to run because they know that there's an afterlife. They know where they're, where they're going and that's not preferable to hear. Yes, and so that adds a whole new spin as well. There will be some good aligned creatures that will die because, hey, I'm going to paradise. Mm-hmm. It's not that big a deal. We all die. We're all going to do it anyway. Here, here we go, right? Which adds another level of complexity to this whole idea of what is intelligence in Dungeons and Dragons, right? The idea of consequences and morality. But let's talk about consequences from a more meta perspective. When you're dealing with misdirection and outsmarting players themselves, what are a couple of pratfalls that you got to watch out for? The two sides of the coin. Playing it smarter or playing it dumber than it should be. Your monster, no matter how smart it is, does not know what spells your cleric prepared for that day. Oh, you mean, yeah, the, the meta. Well, right. I, I know that Jason at the table always likes to drop darkness, so I'm going to set up some dark vision shit. Right. To, yeah, the, the meta knowledge. Yeah. Having your big bad evil guy have a counter to every single little ability, including spells that your party is coming forward with. Now you're just a dick. You're not playing a smart character. Unless they've got the ability to scry. Or they are a literal god that you are coming up against. At which point, and see, here's the pratfall, you're still going to come off as a dick. Yeah. Even though you have a legitimate reason. So this is why I telegraph that stuff ahead of time. And yeah, I was going to say, if that guy can scry, give your players a means to discover they're being scryed upon. And means to block it. Have that be a side quest that needs to happen. And that way, your big bad evil guy is sending minions to stop that. Like You have now a more interesting power dynamic. Right. And these are more interesting side quests and, and, uh, details that are going to make your campaign more memorable instead of random encounter number three at level 16. I have a question for you, Adam. And this is, this is purely meta outside of this. Um, the, the spell scry yep. creates an orb that is invisible, but is there that you can see if you could see invisibility. Okay. Now see invisibility is a second level spell. Um, I have a question. If, you really wanted to telegraph this well. Would you allow a fairy fire spell going off in that area to make the scrying orb that you see visible? Yeah, it says a creature that can see invisible objects sees the sensor as a luminous orb about the size of your fist. Mm-hmm. Which means it can be perceived. I absolutely would do that. If I wanted to add an extra level of stupid, crazy bullshit, I would upcast scrying. I know that's not an option. Scrying is the fifth level spell, but... You know, they've got 8th level magic. They upcast it so that it actually sits in the uh, ethereal plane. Okay. But looks in to the material plane. Oh, okay. Right? Like, I I could get really fucky with it because my... It's a big bad evil guy. Why not? Yeah, my super lich is going to do that. My coven. Don't do that with, like... New players. New players or random wizard 2 that your parties just look like. This is your big bad evil guy that is capable of this level of stuff. But And if you introduce it into your world, be goddamn prepared to let your players, players do, do it, it back. Yeah, exactly. So, honestly, when it comes to the idea of misdirection and outsmarting, I always want to drop hints. 
And I will often create some sort of fail trigger as well. So that even though I am infinitely smarter than you and I put you in a labyrinth with no exit and there's no way out. Ha 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 ha. There absolutely is a freaking way out. And you guys can do it. You just need a short rest till someone else gets gate. Right? Like, <laughs> like whatever it is, like you got to redistribute your, your spell slots with the long rest. So now it's, okay, everybody, let the let the elf wizard get his four hours. We're going to defend him. Nobody touch him. He's meditating. Right? That guy needs to trance so that we can get the fuck out of here. So, and they will think like that. Players will look at their resources most of the time. A lot of the time they'll just be like, I, I have arrows. But... But every once in a while, they will sit there and stop looking at their prepared spells and look at the spell list that they could have. Yeah. Right? And so when that kind of thinking starts to happen, that three-dimensional thinking that your players are doing, you can go four-dimensional thinking with it to try to stay one step ahead. But remember, your job as a dungeon master is to lose. Give them the opportunity to win. So when you outsmart them, let them feel like they're always behind but never fooled. That's the rule that I use at my table. When I'm DMing puzzles and stuff as well, you, I know you can get this in time. This is not an impossible math problem that I came up with. You can solve these riddles, these puzzles, even these social encounters or these impossible looking combats. There are ways to do this. Mm-hmm. You will just realize it halfway through and then you will feel like a genius, but it makes the guy that knew from the beginning look like a super genius. Sure. Any final thoughts about kind of Intelligence and the way that it it affects combat specifically before we I think move we covered on. what we could with it. Like it, <sighs> it to get any deeper into it, you gotta start getting into the creatures themselves. Yeah, yeah. And right. the circumstances you get into themselves. Yeah. yeah. So let's uh let's grab a quick break here and then we're gonna jump into some other specifics. We're gonna zoom in a little bit. Hello, podcast people podcast people. We're recording. Yes. But it makes them sound like pod. We're recording. You're recording. Fuck. Hello, podcast people. We've got a couple of things going on that you might not know about, and so we thought we'd cut away to a little reminder. First of all, we just want to point everyone to our YouTube channel again. We appreciate that all of you listen on your respective favorite podcast apps, but the It's a Mimic YouTube page has all of our shows laid out in playlists. That means you can listen to our Dragon episodes back-to-back or dig through the Campaign Builder or touring the Multiverse series without scrolling through the backlog or having to use a search function. New episodes get uploaded within a week of airing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, but the whole backlog is up there. Even the episodes we're embarrassed about. Yeah, fuck, those early cold opens were sloppy. Yeah. And delicious. The other thing we want to mention is... What? You, you know what else is sloppy but delicious? Whatever you're going to say next is just going to get cut, so... Well, look. The other thing we want to mention is our sneaky little store that lives an unassuming little life on our website. There are stickers, magnets, phone cases, notebooks... Cups, water bottles, coffee mugs, and travel wait, mugs. Wait, 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 wait. I could have a mug? I'm tired of your ugly mug already, man. I want a mug. We even have masks in a variety of sizes because we're socially conscious people. The current designs are for the It's a Mimic Mike and the Deep Dark Irradiance logo, but we'll be updating the store as time goes on. How big are the mugs? I don't know. There's a standard one and a tall one. And a travel mug too. Jesus, I need to look at this website more often. So, please take a second to check out what we have to offer. We really appreciate the donations we've received through the website, but we want to make sure that you guys have the option of getting something for your hard-earned money. Every little bit helps keep the lights on and the side projects rolling. 
and we love you for your support. So thank you to everyone out there who visits www.itsamimic.com and checks out our online store there. <laughs> There's even a little pin with a logo on it. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel for perusing the older episodes. Now, without any further delay, let's head back to the show. Jesus, three different kinds of stickers, Dan. We are capitalist whores. Will you please take these damn commercials seriously? No. Okay, so like last episode, the purposes of this conversation is going to revolve around us breaking down the groups of the creature types into smaller discussions. Sure. So the first thing that I want to get into is what we call fauna, which are beasts and monstrosities. We did a a pretty good breakdown last episode of them, but I'm going to go through it again really quickly. Beasts are real world animals for the most part, although you get things like quippers. Yeah. Which are piranhas. They're just piranhas. I don't know why they did that, but whatever. I I think quippers are a real thing, aren't they? Are quippers a real thing? I think they might be, yeah. If they are, I'm sure they're Australian. They want to devour and eat everything and kill. Quippers. So, all right, there we go. I just pissed off for two Australian people. But there's not a whole lot of um, intelligence in the beast category there. No, There are, however, awakened animals. Yeah, yeah. Those are, I mean... Let's grab our dice. I want to hear your thoughts on awakened animals. I got a natural 20. I got an 11. Dan? Uh, You got some Aslan-level bullshit going on here. Um, I like having Mr. and Mrs. Beaver living in their dam in the woods. Uh, Specifically Mrs. Beaver. No! I love Narnia. The fact that you call it that means that you're not ready for it. I love having awakened animals in, but once they are awakened... They just become furry humanoids. Exactly. And that's honestly how I look at it. Do you play with the the crisis, uh, their identity crisis when they first wake up? Or do you just start to run with it? Like, hey, <laughs> like, you know what? Like I just gained language. Like Guide to the Galaxy? Oh, that thing's coming up to me. It looks really big and round. Ground. I wonder if it'll be my friend. Boof. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. do you have that moment when you're playing it as a DM around the table? Do you give them that insight? Or do you just say, hey, look... This awakened animal now just has gained language and can communicate appropriately. Uh, I mean, situational. Um, I I do enjoy a little bit of comedy in my game. In my games, so uh, yes, I find the uh, existential crisis of a goat to be funny. But I don't do that in combat. Uh, not in combat. Yeah, not in combat uh, for social encounter, sure. But uh, I don't know why you're awakening a goat in the middle of combat anyway. But I think that you want right. to, you, you know, absolutely bleat the hell out of somebody. Instead of beat the hell out of somebody, they bleat like a goat does. Bah. <laughs> Fuck you, Dan. <laughs> no, but when you are fighting awakened beasts, yeah. you're right. They, they're just awakened humanoids with a different skill set without opposable thumbs. Honestly, if I have an awakened beast, I'm not planning on that to be a combat encounter. That to me is going to be a social encounter. It might start off with fighting. We're going to talk dynamic encounters like we did in Campaign Builder. Um, it's going to start as a fight. But then when you stab the lion and it goes, motherfucker, ow, can you not? Congratulations, you're now a social encounter. And I don't care how bloodthirsty your barbarian is. If the penguin starts to talk to him, that barbarian's going to come down off his rage and be like, what do you want, Mr. Tuxedo Man? Like, that's what's going to happen. Look, I, I agree with you. But when you go the other way from a social encounter into a combat encounter, I'm, I'm really, I am treating them like humanoids. Yeah, me too. Monstrosities, though. These are the magical creatures that wizards have created for whatever various reasons that have gotten out into the world and have, um, 
procreated and, and propagated. Now there's more of them out there. So these are your chimeras and your hydras and whatnot. These are the kinds of monstrosities. Although, God, there are a shit ton of them. Most of them are sentient. Yeah, I mean, you have undead and monstrosities are your two biggest monster types. Yes. So there, there's there's a lot to choose there's from. There's a lot of variety in here. Yeah. Um, normally, they resemble animals in some way or have an aspect of an animal. But the low intelligence ones, we said, they rely on instinct the way that, that beasts do. When you add intelligence to them, what are you dealing with then, Dan? Most monstrosities I find are still evil, right? They're, they they still desire to consume, to kill, to... They're at the very least neutral that will sway in the direction of yeah, evil. Yeah, right? Like I think, I think of Grells or Gricks or like that level of things where when I'm playing them, that intelligence translates to ambush tactics. That, am, that, that translates to some sort of skill that they have that they can use with intelligence... To gain an upper edge in combat, right? Yeah, the other thing that I'll say too is that when you deal with the low-level monstrosity that has a specific thing that they rely on, a slam attack or a poison attack or whatever it is, and they have low intelligence, they often lead with that. Mm -hmm. That is their go-to unique thing that they work with. But if you take a harpy, for example, who only has a 7 in intelligence, their big thing is that luring song, right? Yeah. But they have enough intelligence to know that everyone can hear it. Yeah. And those guys ignored the last harpy because this one sat back and watched it happen. So that's not going to use it again. They will learn and adapt. That's the thing about monstrosities with intelligence is they're not going to necessarily rely on the big paragraph action that you get. They're, they may sit back and try something else. They know that that recharges on a, you know, five or six. They will pick and choose their timing a little bit better. And I think that they're going to be able to understand that they're outmatched. They don't know what the sword does, but it glows, so it does something. Mm -hmm. Right? That guy there, that dragonborn, is floating two inches above the ground. Mm, I'll wait for the next people to come by. Yeah. Right? And so you're starting to get that picking and choosing a little bit better. And the other thing about them is a lot of them do have languages, and a lot of the time it's common. So you're going to get more social encounters. And often, probably a lot more trickiness to them as well. Specifically with guys like Harpies, you see that 7-int, they've got that strategy. Remember, 7-int isn't necessarily... It's a high schooler, man. That's a high schooler. They have a base level of, of linguistic capability. They might even have their own little personal slang words or whatever. Oh, right? so, sorry, I gotta say this. For the high schoolers that just got offended by this, understand that... We're not sitting here talking about whether or not you are smart or dumb. We're talking about learnedness and world experience. Yes. And it's just the fact that you are technically a young dragon, not an adult dragon. I have. You're not dumb. I have met some middle schoolers who have lived a life far more intense than I will ever live and thus know some shit more and, than I And do. most kids in high school are clever as fuck. Yeah. Because they fucking have to be there in high school. <laughs> man, I cannot man. tell you how much I, I got to mentally unclench. When I got out of high school, just like the pressure came off my pressure to prove my own shit. Yeah. This is a message straight out. A motivation to those who are in high school or going through the education system, which is weird right now because of fucking COVID. But yes, life does get easier after high school. It just does. Someone like me who was constantly bullied, lived in a shell, like I did not do well in high a school. A literal dragon shell. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, it gets better. Work is hard, yes. And when you get into the occupational adulthood, 
it is hard, but that level of social nitpicking that you see in high school and is just reserved for your mother now. Like she's the only yeah, one that she's the only one that's going to give a shit what type of shoes you wear now. And then eventually your significant other. Yes. So anyway, back to <laughs> let's stop talking about teenagers and focus on the other kind of monstrosity. Sure. Right. Sure. But no toddlers. The, oh fuck. No, those are beasts. <laughs> um, no, but no aberrations. When, when, oozes. They're oozes. They're oozes. There we are. Um, they start off as a plant. We have shriekers in Dungeons and Dragons, and that's what they are. So the there's like a fungi. Anyway, <laughs> fuck next. off, Adam. So <laughs> anyway, the idea here of the ability to strategize and and pick your your time. Remember, these monstrosities often live in the wilderness, where they are the alphas in their immediate domain. Yeah, they're used to being the top dog. So. They, when they know that they're not top dog, they will shrink back. There's a lot of might makes right with monstrosities. I mean, you look at Lamias, right? You're never going to outsmart a Lamia. They've only got it into 14, but you will never outsmart a Lamia. Yeah, according to their lore. Right? Yeah. So you got to play them with a little bit of finesse. I'm so weirded out by Lamias and the fact that they're like Grast's best friends and like you know he gets his freak on with them, and just the the biology of that just bothers me. Are you just trying to send me down a visual... Yeah, you are. I, I'd be lying if I wasn't. Hey. The next thing that I want to talk about, though, is flora. Okay, we talked about fauna. Let's talk about flora for a second. And this is normally just plants and fungi and toddlers, apparently. But um, it also includes oozes for our intents and purposes today. Yeah. Because these are usually non-sentient things that are just out there in the world. Most plants that you have, most plant monsters, have been awoken. Or they're their own unique, really crazy plant beast. Sure. Your, your treants, your blights, your, you know, that kind of Veggie thing. Veggie pygmies, right? yeah. Right. And, you, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of the plant monsters that are surprisingly intelligent. They're going to run around and do their own... Yeah. Don't think, um, there are definitely some out there that have their own motivations. When you get into intelligent plants, Dan, let's roll for this. Sure. When you get into intelligent plants, how do you run that? What do you think? I got a four. All right, 17. Okay, so I'm going first this time. Sure. Intelligent plants are just humanoids. Yeah. They have their own unique little cultures if they are like, if they're the veggie pygmies and the myconids. Or they are hermits if they're treants and woodwodes. Or they're basically wooden knolls if they're blights. Like they 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 have a humanoid counterpart that you can really easily lean on. Yeah. But their motivations for the most part are going to be nature, territorialism, and survival. They're not complex. Even if they have a high intelligence, it just means that they know more. And their knowledge will be nature-based, right? Yeah. And and that's it. That's what you can rely on. And nature-based does not mean they know everything about nature. They know their environment. A treant doesn't necessarily know how to determine um, the way that the weather patterns are going to be in the Arctic. Yeah. It's not all nature necessarily. They are masters of their own um, environment and domain. And remember, they live in the wilderness. They're probably one of the alphas. Although they tend to be, correct me if I'm wrong on this, plants tend to be more passive. Uh, the intelligent plants, I mean, blights are... Blights hunt. But, right. but all the others tend to want to be left alone. Yeah, they they are reactive. If you enter their little, literally their reach, 
Yeah. Then they will react to you. But if if you don't mess with them, they won't mess with you. But when it comes to oozes. They will mess with you. They will mess with you. Now, there are really the two intelligent oozes that come to mind. That's the Oblexes, which are just sneaky as all shit. Yeah, yeah. They're out to, to get you, right? And then there is the Slithering Tracker. Now, we don't really have to hit the broad strokes on these guys. The Oblexes are, they blend in and they consume and eat. Yep. And the Slithering Tracker, it's right in the name. It does two things. Slithers. And tracks. There it is. So... Um, it's, it's a hunter type, right? We know the intelligence level here. Again, they're going to be able to pick and choose. They're going to sit there and try to pull one over on you if they're an Oblex. The Slytherin Tracker is going to stay in the shadows, try to stay invisible if it can, and then it'll leap at the correct time. Do you have any insights when it comes to these? Honestly, man, like we discussed last week how a lot of oozes become, can become traps, right? They, they can, they can form that little level of, um, intrigue, but the fact that a ooze can get to pretty much anywhere means that when I'm playing an ooze, I am th- I'm playing 3D chess, man. Like there's an ooze traveling through the floor underneath you, waiting for you to become separated. If it's a smart ooze, it will fight with patience. It really will. That is a great point because it is, for all intents and purposes, immortal. It wants to consume, and it if you're in its realm, if you're in with if it's got its target set on you. It can wait till you're sleeping to consume you. And like space, you're not going to be able to scream when your lungs are filled with acid goop. So like space, no one can hear you scream? Yeah. You're going, okay. You took, me, you took me on a wild ride there. <laughs> okay. So let's move on then to things we didn't discuss last week. Sure. Okay. These are the more civilized. In quotations. In quotations. <laughs> but they are. These are going to be your, they have civilizations. Your humanoids, your giants. And your dragons, who are often very close to civilization and run as tyrants. Yes. Yeah. So, um, let's start off with dragons, actually. Sure. First of all, you know what dragons are. You play Dungeons & Dragons. I don't feel the need to get into a big description about dragons. Can we just say real quick? Wings with four legs. Y- yes. Dragon. Wings with two legs. Wyvern. No legs with just wings. Flying snake. Okay. No wings, just legs. Hydra or crocodile or... Drake. Drake, yeah. yeah. Right. In D&D, these are clearly defined traits of these. If your dragon has two legs, it's not a dragon, it's a wyvern. That's one of the differences between Dungeons and & Dragons and Pathfinder. Yeah. Drakes have wings in Pathfinder. Yes, they do. Yeah. So, anyway, dragons... That's, that, 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 that's just a little sticking, like a little pet peeve of mine as a big fantasy nerd. I'll be like, hey, look at this dragon I drew. No, man, that's a, that's a, that's a drake. What are you doing? Dragons have wings. They no, I watched Game of Thrones. Anyway, here's what the other things you need to know about dragons. They are generally at odds with giants and have had like amazingly massive wars with them in the past. This this is so overlooked. Like this is We'll jump into this in the giants episodes as yeah. they come along. If you want to know about the dragons, we've got a dozen or so episodes about them and where we break it down by dragon type. And they all have their own unique personalities, but by the broad strokes, let's roll initiative sure. understand. How do you run an intelligent dragon? I will go after you because I got a one. I'm glad that we're back to the way things should be. Yeah. So, um, honestly, dragons scheme. Oh, yes. Every one of them does. The ancient dragons, I look at it by the actual tier of dragon at that point, is going to be how effective their schemes are and how far reaching, no matter their intelligence. Ancient dragons scheme better than adult dragons 
who scheme better than young dragons, who scheme better than wormlings. A wormling's scheme is, I'll wait till dark and eat the goat. Sure. A young dragon scheme is, I will wait till dark and I will get that guy to bring me a goat. An adult dragon will say, I'm going to get a bunch of goats and have that guy and that guy be farmers so I will always have goats. And an ancient? Just keep going? No, and an ancient will say, keep the bard away from the goats. (laughs) Very nice. Uh, My whole thing with dragons is, no matter what, a dragon's smarter than you, man. Ancient dragon. Even adult dragon is probably smarter than you are. Yeah, right? And... Because they're effectively immortal, because they are... An ancient dragon can be a patron, right? So let's let's approach them with that same level of intrigue, that same level of intellect, where they are just... They are four steps ahead of you, right? You, you are trying to play chess against Magnus Carlsen. It, it's not going to go well for you. And your dragon is going to be one of those guys that will be able to tell when they're outclassed and will have contingencies for that occurrence. Your ancient dragon should never be fighting guys outside of its lair because it has powers in its lair. And it knows it. And it's designed the lair to use those effectively. Right. We are talking about your geniuses at this point. And every dragon, even the white dragon, the ancient white dragon, is smarter than you. Mm Mm-hmm. And you really do have to play it that way. Um, you may stack the dragons up against each other based on intelligence and maybe shift a little bit, but they're still all playing um, a more intense and intelligent game. They are also fully aware of their capabilities and their strengths and how to use them. So if they are fighting against you, they know that their scales are harder than your armor and my fire will have more effect on you. If you're fighting metallic dragon, they will know, well, I'm not putting any of the elves to sleep. They'll know these things. And the other thing, too, about them is you talked about how oozes are patient. Dragons live forever. Mm -hmm. Really think about the if and when they will engage. Because even the impulsive or the evil ones or the ones that will fly into a rage will be smart enough to be enraged and wait until you least expect it, motherfuckers. I won't kill you. I don't have to kill you. Your entire goal is legacy. So I'll kill your family. Yeah. Right? Like that, that is the kind of scheming a dragon does. I am going to inhale your scent and wait for your descendants to be at their weakest. And in 250 years, when you are playing a new campaign and you've got a character who is distantly related to a previous character and they come up to the dragon, that dragon's going to be like, oh, you smell familiar. I know you. I know who you come from, right? And whether or not that's a... That's a really disgusting way of putting it. Next time I see your kid, it's going to be like, I know who you come from. That's gross, Dan. Gross. Why would no, you say that? Because... Why would you introduce that to the world? I I, I was spelling uh, that word a different way than you did. Smell? No. No. I'm not saying it now. So giants. Yes. There are many different kinds of giants. Everyone talks about, you know, the six main giants, but we've got trolls and ogres and ettins and cyclopses and verbigs and other shit. But they all tend to be sentient, even the hill giants. They may act like they're not sometimes, <laughs> but they are. What's your name? Queen Ugg. Yeah, they, they, they can be very, very stupid and they can react like wild animals, but they are technically sentient. They've got this old rivalry with the dragons and. They tend to have kingdoms and tribes and societies like large humanoids. Mm -hmm. How do you run them? Because they're very different than your standard humanoids. But 
Do you run them differently or that's just a 15 foot tall dude? I, I lean into the exaggerations when it comes to giants. If a town guard with, you know, subpar intellect would be lazy or easy to manipulate and fool, then I'm leaning into that as an exaggerated form of giants. A hill giant is going to be just that much more easier to convince and manipulate and fool than that guard. If your high-end noble is going to be manipulative and and uh, all about his family and prideful in that way, well, when you encounter some storm giants, my friend, prestige and rank, and that's all they're about. I look at what I would run as a human with that kind of idea with the character, and I inflame it for giants. I exaggerate it for giants. I think a lot of people do that. I mean, you don't just have a frost giant. You have super Norse mythology. Yes. Right. And people really do lean into that. When I look at how I run giants, I I tend to run them more emotionally. Sure. Even if they're high intelligent, they will be more emotional. They are going to kind of give in to their impulses a little bit more until you run into a king or a queen or a priest of some sort. Sure. So... It's like I'm running humanoids, but with impulse control problems a lot of the time. Yep. And they're not obsessive compulsive. They they don't have ADD, but they just have a very short view on things. Is that a pun? Um, they're also very um, isolated. Yes. That's the other thing about them is they don't want to be a part of the humanoid world. They, for me, they are isolationists almost always. If they're going to get involved with you, it will be from a political standpoint. Sure, okay. Whether that's attacking as an army or whatever. If you run into an army of giants, you are not having a combat situation. This is a skill check. This is a running away situation. Yeah, this is skill challenge right now, so you can not get trampled. Dan, you ran up against, what, 70 giants attacking? Yeah, if it wasn't for an incredibly, uh, I hope you don't take offense, poorly thought out magic item. (laughs) Um that could have gone poorly for us. Oh my god, it wasn't even the poorly thought out magic item. It, it was just, they used the appropriate thing at the appropriate you, time. You gave a auto-success social item to Terry. He wasn't supposed to remember that he had it. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those moments where, where we're like, Terry, Terry, oh shit, Terry, Terry's remembering something. If I can be honest, he was given that because I wanted to steal it and use it against him. Okay. That was me introducing it into the campaign because nobody ever checks their character sheets for items. And then Terry had enough time to go, holy shit, we're fucked. And he started to flip through his character sheet. And I went, God damn it, shouldn't have given him. Because <laughs> he was just the swing swing his, uh, his glaive yeah. and move on. And that's all he did, right? In and out, poke. In and out, poke. And that's, fuck. I learned my lesson. Don't give Terry the opportunity to think. That's that's fair. So the other thing about giants that I, I look at is the idea that they tend to have large pets. Okay. Do you follow me on this? I I, I mean, I, yes, I do. But it's not like your frost giants don't just have large cold cows. No, but a lot of people run them like that. Yeah. And I don't see why not. Like they, they farm, they hunt, and they will have large, like huge size creatures that, that they ride. We're talking like Babe the Ox. Level yeah. thing. Yeah, okay. And a lot of people run their giants that way, and I like to do that too. The idea that they are agricultural and they're not hunter-gatherers is a big deal. The fact that they have fortresses and settlements mm-hmm. and they're not nomadic. Hill giants are nomadic. I have a better idea of their intelligence level if they're a nomad because they haven't figured out basic irrigation yet. Yeah, okay. Right? And I look at that from my mobs as well. Let's talk about humanoids for a second. Sure. 
No. I'm done talking about humanoids. We talked about humanoids for the last <laughs> fucking five months. I am done talking about humanoids. Like I said at, at the beginning of the episode, we have waxed poetic about them. And we will continue to with the playable races and uh, more monster episodes and yeah. other DM tips and stuff. But I don't think that we can add anything to them. They're so wildly varied that we would have to go humanoid by humanoid all the way through. There's a radical difference between a knoll and an Aladrin. And we just did that for six months. And and, and so we're taking a break from yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But everything that we said at the beginning of the episode about motivations and um, retreating and all of that stuff applies to humanoids. Know your race. Know your culture. Yeah. That will give you an idea. And when I say know your race, I don't mean, oh, all elves are. No, no, no. If they have dark vision, that gives you an idea of what they're like. Oh, it has fey ancestry or it has fury of the small or whatever it is. This gives you an idea based on their unique racial traits, how, how they're going to yeah. react. So yeah. so look at that. And then the culture as well. And that's why we see things like if an orc is raised in a civilized walled city, that baseline standard no, vicious feral nomad is now raised in a situation where it's, you know, within walls and civilized and has to learn how to read and shit like that. There's still going to be some racial level of uh, inspiration to that character's motivations that you have to be aware of. Right. So before we move on any further, I just want to tell everybody, I want to give you a reminder. Hey, all the DMs out there that are listening. Whether you're new or old to this, you're doing a good job. (laughs) You are doing this crazy amount of lifting. You're playing a different game than the rest of the table. And your mind is on a lot of things that are not necessarily mechanical. Please, I have learned from experience, take the time. Read the combat section of the player's handbook again. Read the exploration rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide. They're there for a reason and they're not bad. Yeah. We talk about how it's the most under-supported um, pillar, pillar of yeah. Dungeons & Dragons. And that is because the player's handbook is the social pillar. The monster manual is the combat pillar. And we have this exploration pillar that is hidden in the Dungeon Master's Guide that people are not looking at. Read the combat section of the player's handbook. Read the exploration section of the player's handbook. And then go look at all the exploration rules in the DMG. They're there for a reason. They are your best friend. Yes. Get in there. And I'm not kidding. There's a bunch of good shit in there. And we're not even getting into the fun stuff that's in Xanathar's or Tasha's or... I mean, hell, there's all sorts of crazy rules in Ghost of Salt Marsh. And, like, there's... I mean, at, at, the, at this point of the edition, like, we're seeing new fun exploration combat... Uh, social rules coming out in Theros and Ravnica and like everything. Yeah, there's so much other stuff out there. But when was the last time you flipped through the DMG and stopped to actually read how it works? Because it will give you a refresher and it will inspire you to go back to your basics when you don't necessarily have to worry about how am I going to make this this goblin combat interesting. We actually have other rules that you probably haven't leaned on yet that you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to do it in the fog at night. On the side of a cliff. Hopefully you have a fall protection. Right. But suddenly this becomes interesting and that wouldn't have occurred to you. There are all sorts of inspiration pieces in the Dungeon Master's Guide. I harp on it as being fairly useless for a DMG, but there are useful bits and pieces. Well, then if if you are going out there and you are looking through that, even if you are an experienced DM uh, who's been playing this game for decades, do that. And then go over to our subreddit and let us know. Or our Instagram and let us know. 
or our Facebook. So what I'm trying to say is you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us at r slash it's a mimic on Reddit, as well as emailing us. You could contact us to engage in that social pillar at info at it's a mimic.com. That is our email. We love hearing from you guys. If you send us any questions, those will be added to our list of mailbag questions for our next upcoming mailbag special. All right, so let's get into the ones that I find to be the most straightforward when it comes to intelligent creatures. Sure. And that is the Outsiders. Now, we talked last episode, we mentioned briefly that Outsiders was an actual term that was used in previous editions, Mm -hmm. and it was for anything that came from outside the material plane. So upper and lower planes, the uh, elemental chaoses that exist out there, uh, Shadowfell and Feywild and whatnot, so aberrations. What is the first thing that you think about? I got a two. I got a one. Going, I'm going first with a two. When I think of intelligent aberrations... Um, I mean, it's mind flayers, right? It, yeah. It's, it's mind flayers and beholders. That's yeah, what we're, yeah. Pretty much. Um, and their goals, their motivations are going to be otherworldly, right? They care about things that a normal material plane creature would not even comprehend to think of. What The way that I put it in my head is get weird... Get specific, you don't need to know why. That is going to be across the gamut with all of them. Also remember, like, we've said it a couple times, read the flavor text because... They have motivations in there a lot of the time. Yeah, but knowing where they come from, like, there was a long time I thought Mind Flayers were just like your average little, like, underdark dwelling brain creatures that just lurked in the shadows to eat the brains of whatever came around, right? That was my mind flares. No, man, these motherfuckers come from space. So there's there's some differences in the approach there because of that. They're going to have radical motivations based a lot on, you know, survival and whatnot because they don't have a home base to go back to. These guys have branched out. This is true for all outsiders. They're on the material plane without backup, mm-hmm. right? So they're. I think these guys are willing to fight to the death. Yes, Far more likely than monstrosities, beasts, humanoids, giants, dragons. Plants and oozes may fight to the death. They're not that complex. But when you get into the intelligent ones, they do want to survive to the next day. But intelligent aberrations are willing to just keep gnashing their teeth at you Mm -hmm. until you are as damaged as possible. So the next one then is uh, Celestials. Yes. Very similar. Very similar, except their motivations are even more straightforward. Yeah. So, so these are your upper planes, right? These are your angels. Most of the celestials are intelligent creatures. They have motivations. They're good aligned, and we know they are. Mm-hmm. They're here with a broader concept of the greater good. Even the lower intelligent ones are about the greater good. They are nearly defined by their alignment, more so than just about any other creature type. Uh, yeah, um, it's one of the reasons why I've said multiple times that I want to see more interesting celestial creatures. Then go to Ravnica and Theros. Theros They've yeah. got a lot of good shit in there. So it's strange that the Magic the Gathering fleshed this out as well as they have. And yeah. I'm really appreciative of that. But despite the fact that they're in constant battle with fiends, when they come up against a party in combat, it tends to be alignment reasons. You should not have killed that thing. I must smite you now. Yes. Do you have any further depths beyond that when you're dealing with this level of high intelligence, but this unwavering morality? Their sense of justice is also far more elevated. So when I'm when I'm looking at what a fight with celestials look like, I'm not just thinking about 
the sanctity life or, or selfishness or selflessness, however you want to look at the good spectrum, I'm also looking at the law and chaos spectrum on them. And that is where I'm going to find a lot of their flavor because every celestial is, you know, capital G good, right? But they, their variety comes from their law to chaos spectrum. Yeah, they're right? not all angels. They're not all angels. Some of them are willing to bend the rules to obtain the greater good. Right. If you go listen to our uh, celestial episode that we've done, the Empyrean is very strange. Mm-hmm. It feels like it should be an angel, but it isn't, and it is freaking dangerous. Yes. Right. And yeah. so there are a lot of different options out there. I agree with you one hundred percent about celestials. I don't have a whole lot to add, but I do think about this. When it comes to them, I feel like a lot of the time they want to not just impose their will on this specific situation, but also teach a lesson. Yes. Is is it a biblical story, Dan, where they um, they're arguing about the baby? Yeah, and then yeah. the king cuts the baby Solomon, in two. Yeah. Right? Okay. Well, well, threatens to cut the threatens. Baby. Right? That <laughs> Solomon's not walking around with a with a freaking wood, 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 wood saw. Wood, wood. <laughs> For my next trick, we'll be sawing this baby in half. Right? No, but but that is something that I think an angel or a celestial may do to gather the town together and say, if you cannot get along, this will be equal portions. Yeah. We will portion this out and you may not freaking like it. Um, Honestly, man, like, yeah, I, I try to avoid talking about the Bible and how I use it as a source for inspiration. But there's some kooky duke shit that happens in Judges in the Bible. If you want really, really interesting ways to run your celestials, the Judges in Judges do some shit. That's weird. My favorite judge is Judge Reinhold. Elementals. I thought it was Judy. Judy Reinhold? No, you you like Judge Judy. I don't know what you're talking about. Judge Judy. I have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know Judge Judy? Who the fuck is Judge Judy? Oh my God. I'm fucking with you. I'm fucking with you. (laughs) So Elementals. One cultural thing that Adam has no (laughs) clue about? What is this white fucking whale I have discovered? (laughs) No, no, no. I'm fucking with you. So... Elementals, these forces of nature that come from the other elemental planes that are out there that end up getting drawn in, often summoned, usually out of their element. Yeah, pardon the pun. But they are uh, sitting there at trying to control nature and largely to be left alone. Yeah. When you start to add intelligence like the elemental evils, I find that most of the time they become very malevolent. Oh, yeah. They want to see the propagation of their element. And nature... And dominance of its elements over nature. It's interesting in Dungeons & Dragons that nature plus intelligence equals evil or violent. Mm. And it's interesting that we go that that route. You don't get a whole lot of lawful in your elementals, but there's some. Yep. Do you have any insights? Where, uh, elemental, intelligent elementals are... It's so easy to be one note with elementals. They're about burning everything. They're about smothering everything and drowning everything. No, that, that, when it comes to the intelligent elementals, it, uh, and I said it briefly, it is about the dominance of their elements over all other forms of nature, right? Everything else outside of that, your civilization, your rank and file, where you sit on the class list of that political structure does not matter to them. So when it comes to combat with one of these intelligent guys, they don't give a shit if you are a wizard or a barbarian or a whatever, they just, they will attack you based off of whatever they deem is the easier kill first. 
Yeah, the thing about elementals, when I look at the intelligent elementals, the ones that are able to... Strategize? Not even just strategize, but they're sentient. They're aware of themselves and, and the area around them and whatnot. It occurs to me that the four elements that make up the world... Fire, wind, water, and earth. Yes. I, I always say wind when I should say air, because then it fucks me. go, fire, wind, air. No way. Right? <laughs> oh, and, and love. Right. But no, that's that's my point. They're the four elements. And you are a flesh bag full of wet bones walking around imposing your will. You are the outsider. Yeah. You are the aberration to, to them, to yeah. their world, right? And so a lot of the time they want to correct that, especially when you have other meat sacks that have come in that have enslaved them. And that's a common oh, theme. In Aberon? Oh, like, in Aberon? Oh, but hmm. also in the Forgotten Realms as well, the idea of the enslaving of elements. Yeah. Right. When you get into Ravnica and you get into some of the weirds and they, they tend to operate almost like monstrosities because wizards are creating and matching these things together. But there, there is this overall idea of um, you being weird, you being something they don't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. They would rather you not be here. But there's also the other little corner of the elemental spectrum. And I'm thinking of Mephits and Megman and whatnot that are almost impish and chaotic. The Garab doers or whatever they're called. Yeah, they're there to, to be a little bit more... Um, chaotic and uh, I don't want to say insane, but I mean, the Zorn is an elemental as well, right? These are creatures that are not necessarily trying to impose their will with their dominant. They're going to find their dominant element and they're going to stick to it. And they're just going to mess with anybody that comes by because you are not one of us. Mm-hmm. You are a resource that I don't understand, but you're tasty. Om nom nom. A lot of the time it is that um, yeah. for the Zorn, but for, for Magman and Mephits, they just want you to, like, go away. Speaking of things that just want you to go away that are totally alien and stuff, let's talk about Fae for a second. Sure. Now, everybody knows kind of the Feywild at this point in the podcast. We've gone off but We did an episode on the Feywild where we talked about the blue-orange morality. Their mentality is incredibly different and strange. Everything from pixies to blink dogs to yeth hounds to hags. There's all sorts of crazy shit there. We're getting more and more and more of them. Which I, I, as a fan of fae and fairy mythology, love. Yes, I, I'm a fan of it too. But we have the evil red caps all the way to the chaotic good satyrs, right? Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that's going on for the fae. So it's hard to really categorize them all at once. But a lot of people play intelligent fae as being just kind of weird and silly. Whimsical, yeah. Right? There's more to it than that. They're straight up dangerous, when they get to this higher level, higher echelon of uh, um, intelligence, they can be a warlock patron, right? So I, I I see that and I go, if they have that level of power where they can develop cults that follow them and then those cults generate warlocks, there is a malevolence. There is, and it doesn't even need to be malevolence. There's just an intelligence behind it that is terrifying, right? And knowing their motivations as these higher end fey is going to be hard for you as a DM to wrap your mind around. Like what does a unseelie arch fey? We don't have the support in fifth edition to be able to answer like where you're going with this. Yeah. The seelie and unseelie courts are the order brought to the chaos of the fey wild. And we don't know what that looks like. No, there's a great resource in Matt Coville's um, book. He's got the, uh, the he's got a fey court. Yeah. He's got the fey court in there. Which is really, really useful. But it's not the whole story. I talked to Dave and Kyle. They talked about the Dresden Files. They've got a lot of fake 
bullshit yep. in there as well. There are different places to look for different Fey inspiration. Hook and Peter Pan is a great way to look at it. Yep. But you almost have to go creature type by creature type to figure out exactly what they want. Because they're so unique and different from each other. And Well, you gotta you gotta think. The Feywild, like the Shadowfell, is just an echo of the material plane. So the variety you see in the material plane, you're going to see that same variety in the Feywild and the Shadowfell. It's just going to be exaggerated either in the uh, color side of things with the Feywild or the edge side of things with the Shadowfell. Okay, so the last kind of outsider is, of course, the Fiend. And as varied as the Fey are, the Fiends tend to be more categorized. There are really four different kinds of Fiends. Devils, Demons, Yugoloths, and then the Uncategorized, which are a little bit weird. You're Night Hags and Rakshasas and, and Hellhounds and whatnot. Yeah. So they all come from the lower plane. They're all skewed towards evil. But they're not all evil. <laughs> evil. They're yeah. not super villain types. They're also not just, you know, rape and murder, which is how a lot of people play a lot of these yeah. these pure evil characters. So, devils are entirely intelligent creatures. Yugoloths as well. There's no dummy among them. No, no. Most of the demons, most of them are intelligent creatures and can strategize, which is important because they can possess. Yeah. Right? And then I think just about half of the uncategorized are hyper-intelligent. And the majority of them are also on the intelligent sentient scale well, somewhere. You, you see like Rakshasa or uh, Succubi or yeah. Incubi, which are really the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to have a conversation about fiends in general without bumping it down into the four sub-genres of them. But do you have any insights? You said, you know, they're not all going to be that ha-ha-ha evil. Remember, a lot of them have... Rank, uh, especially with devils, they have that rank and file level of motivation. They, I would say the Yugoloths do as well. Like they serve a purpose within the mercenary armies. If you are encountering devils and Yugoloths on the material plane, they are fully aware that yes, if they die here, it's gonna suck, but they're not done. Like say you're running uh, Avernus, they're going to play with a lot more care if you're fighting them on Avernus than they will on the material plane. They are far more likely to fight to the death on the material plane because you're doing them a favor by sending them back to hell. Well, I mean, they fought to get here, right? It's an maybe, inconvenience. Maybe or maybe not. They could have just been summoned here. Right? That's true. There is a lot of there's a lot of summoning right. in fifth edition. So so um I could I almost see like some devils who are enslaved by a wizard being maybe kind of suicidal in that regard, right? They'll take those extra chances because hey. They die. They're free from that asshole. Yeah, you know what? Death is an inconvenience on the material plane. And that's it. They're willing to fight to the death. Yes. You're going to see that especially in demons who are just destructive as all hell, right? Even the high intelligence ones, they're sitting there going, how can I rot, corrupt, and desecrate this area? Destroy morality as much as I possibly can. Before I am shunted back home. Yeah, I mean, they keep saying that Yunogu, the demon prince, is... The, what, what do they call them? The, the Beast of Butchery or... Uh, yeah, yeah. Something like that, yeah. So they even say that he himself keeps getting to the material plane, but he never lasts long because he's just out there to create as much havoc and chaos and misery. And then some conglomerate of adventuring parties pushes him back to his realm. And... Often armies yeah. take on his knolls and then he gets killed and sent back 
just to claw his way back again. Mm -hmm. And that, like, he's almost stuck in a loop doing that, right? When we're dealing with fiends themselves, and I look at their level of intelligence, their level of scheming, it feels short-term to me. Now, pit fiends and Baylors, they exist at a different level. Like, they're going yeah, to have yeah. schemes and whatnot. And there are others as well, the Amnazus of the world, um, your uh, Ultraloths. Yeah. Night Hags, Rekshasas, these guys are schemers. But your Bone Devils are smart, but they're still out there to create havoc and chaos. Yeah. Your motivations are far more clear, um, unless you're playing one of the obvious schemers. At which point, I play them almost like a humanoid. The moment they start to scheme, they are reckless to a degree because they don't care if, if they get found yeah. out. And if they're operating with any sort of uh, subterfuge at all, it's a temporary thing. They are planning to pull the mask off and say, it was me all along as the entire kingdom burns behind them, right? Yeah. You may accelerate their plans by forcing their hand. Any other thoughts about fiends? No, man. I mean, we've we've covered fiends at length in various different ways. I have so much to say about fiends. It's my favorite subtype. Yeah, I, 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 I get that and I understand why. Um, but for me, like... Because we've covered them a lot, we'd just be repeating ourselves when, when we're saying some of the stuff. So they're smart. They're trying to trick you. They likely will. And they have that level of not give a fuckedness that only comes with somebody who knows that if they're dead here, they're just freer back home. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I really do look at the fiends themselves, um, the different lower planes as being different enemy kingdoms. Yeah. They run with spies and armies and they are, they, they will have their own politics within their own kingdoms and whatnot. And just because demons are chaotic to a fault and want to seek destruction, look at Gratz, man. Look at Zugtomoy. Look at these other demon lords, demon lords. Look at Orcus, who also scheme, who. They're not all Demogorgon. They're not all Demogorgon. They have long-term views. Yeah. They just happen to be demons. Gratz, a, a Gratz-focused campaign of indulgence and debauchery and, and all that other stuff is going to have more subterfuge, more political intrigue than a Game of Thrones level low magic campaign. Oh yeah, all your arch devils and demon lords are not only scheming against each other, they're also scheming among their own ranks. Every, every pit fiend is out to replace yeah. an archdevil. Right. Like, there is so much shit going on in the background that I say, like, when you get up to the... Anything that's a CR 15 or above, we're talking schemer now. The the tier 4 and above enemies, you're into some shit. Yeah. Right? This is going to be your 4D chest now. Okay, so that leaves us with the last category, and that's the creations. Sure. Constructs and undead. Now... These are creatures that exist for a reason. They've been created by someone else. But when we start to think about it, so have all of the playable races. Mm -hmm. So have all of the, I mean, short of the aberrations, which I mean, who knows. <laughs> um, and specifically demons, because the abyss just exists and yeah, does weird shit. Spits them out, yeah. And elementals, I guess. Sure. Everything else has been created for a reason. By an entity that we know has a, a plan. So is this any different? Are constructs run any different from humanoids? Uh, they've met their their maker, well, literally. Well, well, pardon the pun, but they're kind of on rails, right? Like they they there is very 
logical process to a construct. Right, so. but, but not not the low intelligence ones. No, 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 even the high intelligence ones have a purpose and are on rails in a way. All right, let's let's roll. Sure. I, want, I, want I got an eight. I got a thirteen. Okay, so here's my perspective. Okay, first of all, remember Warforged, not constructs. Okay, yeah. so they are just a, a people. They're just a, a regular race. So when you're dealing with intelligent constructs, do they have the ability to have an existential crisis? No. So you don't think that they have imagination. They are high intelligence, no imagination yes. creatures. That's how you run them? Yes. Exclusively so, yeah. What is the flip side of that in the D&D world? The high imagination, low... low Fae. Fae. Look, I don't disagree with that at all. Fae is... The, the Fae is life unfettered. Whereas uh, constructs... Are fettered life? Are fettered barely life. Are fettered uh, animation. It is... Chaos versus law. What about awakened objects? Awakened objects. I, I are we running them like the animals and the awakened plants as well? Is yeah, the same right. Thing? Yeah, um, and I mean we have some awakened spells that are actually intelligent, and we have some um, and are technically. Oh, you mean the living spells? Yeah, the uh, living spells that are technically intelligent, like the uh, aw- uh, the living demi plane from Candlekeep. Right, it's smart and it's there to trap you, but. It, it, it's got big schemes, but it, it has its one purpose. It's on rails, right? And when I think of constructs, that's what I think. You have to look at why they were created and who created them. Yes. And that's that gives you everything you need to know about them. Yeah. We're not really talking about um, a whole lot of retreating from these guys, are we? No, not really. Not unless, not unless you're getting in the way of their purpose. And if they disengage, they can go back to serving their purpose. Yeah. Okay. Undead then. <laughs> undead are very clearly very obviously creatures that were alive and have risen for whatever reason a lot of the times it's orcus or the shadow fell has gotten all mixed in somehow yep. or it's desecrated land sometimes it's accidents like ghosts coming back but a lot of times it's summoning and creating with necromantic magics and whatnot and when you are an intelligent and you have come back from the dead almost always you're evil yes well this comes from the view that I hold of uh, evil as being that bastardization of life. Not bastardization of life. That's the wrong way to put it. That um, perversion of perversion life. of life. And like constructs, they are up, they're mobile, they're moving around. But there's something off about them. And when you get to these high intelligence undead, like your liches. And your revenants. Your, your revenants. Your, your death knights. Your specters and stuff like that. Their concerns, although rooted in... Normal humanoid level concerns are inflamed and and are far more exaggerated when it comes to undead, in my mind. Specifically, your revenants. Your revenants are there for vengeance and only vengeance. So if you are a cog that could help them achieve vengeance, they will chase you down and they will use you in any way they can. Liches. When I said things are either about power or survival, they figured out the survival. That's no longer a concern to them. They will live. They're all about power. Right? Um, and live is in... Exist. They're up yeah. and animate and scheming. And- right? So their goal is to generate 10th level spells. Like, that's the that's the level playing field that they're on. Do you think that Orcus has a thing against liches? Oh, 110%. Or do you think that he uses them as long-term tools to reduce the living population? I, I you think th- that he's got all of these liches out doing their shit, and he's waiting till it's nothing but liches, and he's just going to snap his fingers, and now they're all dead. I mean, yeah, I 
I honestly, I, I think he has a problem with liches just because a lot of liches achieve lichdom in an attempt to seek deification, which would put them, uh, they are far more ambitious than even Orcus himself is. Oh, uh, he must regard. hate Vecna. Yeah, right? So I, I would say he is very aware of every single lich and what they're doing. Very aware. And should they step out of line, now they have to deal with their necromancy going awry. Yeah, this is the other thing about them that I'm looking at. And we've hit this, we've said this word a lot, and I was not expecting this, patience. Mm -hmm. Patience is a big factor with your high intelligent creatures. Yes. Right? And so, and I'm not talking big bosses necessarily either. Your mummy lords, your specters, your um, revenants, they're going to hang back and wait. The will-o'-wisp, whites, these guys are going to sit back and strike at the right time. They're there to create death. They're going to do it effectively with the tools that they have. They all just have a very specific skill set that they can use. And so they will wait until they can use it. You and I are both massive fans of horror. And when we see undead, a lot of them are built towards that idea that you want to use these in a horror type setting. Sure. Right? Yeah. Looking at undead with just that frame of mind, they will trap. They will try to separate they will try to well, they've got gain advantage yeah, in any way they can that is why they have fear effects yeah right they want two of the three of you to run away and leave the last guy by himself we mentioned it with uh the unintelligent and we haven't really mentioned it a lot with the intelligent but that utilization of environment is so much more deadly with an intelligent adversary because not only do they understand the territory they're in better than you, they also understand how to use it. And they've got a 10-step process to annihilate a party by I'm gonna drop that tree or create a pit there or, you know, get you locked in that room, right? I know there's a black pudding in that room and that black pudding may not be smart, but I'm going to use it. That's the level of threat you're dealing with with these guys. So generally speaking, do you have any other thoughts about how to run intelligent creatures? Um, just because they're smart doesn't mean they won't use their environment. Just because they're smart doesn't mean they won't run away. Just because they're smart doesn't mean they won't fly into a uncontrollable rage. Sentience does not mean smart. The intelligence stat does not mean how strategic you are. Yeah. It's just about how much information you retain. It informs, it does not define. Exactly. Yeah. And so we have to look at the flavor text, the circumstances, the scenario, the uh, biology, the civilization, the culture, the environment, the surroundings. There's so many things go into this. With an intelligent creature, they're able to manipulate these things better. One of the things that we've talked about is patience. They're manipulating their own time. They know what their motivations are and they know, if not the best way to go about it, a good way, a better way. Yeah. And I mean, you can succeed or you could fail at running these things when it comes to these high ends. Like never, ever, ever make your beholders guard dogs. Oh, okay. You're still upset about that? Oh, I will forever be upset about that. Okay. Well, look, we've rambled long enough. And anything further we say is going to have to wait for a monster-specific episode. Sure. Because I feel like we've hit the broad strokes. Yeah. And you're just about to go off on a Beholder rant. So, stay tuned next week for something a little bit different. As Dan and I step outside 5th edition and discuss, well, uh, fucking fever dream. 
Anyway, stay tuned a week and you'll find out what what that horrible shit that we were both dreading is. Mm -hmm. That's it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you would like to support us, we have that donate button on our website at www.itsamimic.com. Every little bit helps. And we'd like to thank everyone that has donated. And we also rely on word of mouth to get the news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass the word on to everyone you know that we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thanks for listening to the It's a Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. All right, Adam, we talked briefly about constructs and intelligence, inanimate objects and stuff like that, things that have been awakened and animated. And there is another subsection of all this that we didn't really touch on, and that is legit intelligent weapons. Yep. These are your Fathom Blade and your uh, Cursed Edge or the Black Razor is one of them, yep. right? How do you determine in your own homebrew world the personalities and goals of an intelligent item. Let's do it. Two. I got a one. I'm going first with a two. There you go. Um, For me, when I'm doing a lot of homebrew, when it comes to these kind of things, you have to remember an intelligent weapon is no longer motivated by survival. It's no longer motivated by uh, the continuance of itself. It is often motivated by either power or consumption in a kind of, base robotic feel almost like a construct right it has the one thing it wants to do and that's the thing it does i look at the type of weapon and how that informs Mm -hmm. the personality yep a spear is going to behave differently than a sword sure right in 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 that realm but i also look to alignment man and and what i want this thing to be uh doing to be uh plotting or scheming or who in the party it wants to be held by the most I'll look to its alignment to see that, or even its history. What about you? I'm going to ask you a question before I get into this. Sure. How many intelligent weapons? You've played with me for a few years now, me yeah. DMing. How many times have I handed out an intelligent weapon? How many can you name that I've handed out? None. There was Keith the Sunsword. Oh, Keith the Sunsword, yeah. That yeah. I did not hand out. Terry handed it out when I before I took over the campaign. And then somehow Terry ended up with it. And Man, that guy was playing along. That was like that was like 12 step ahead chest right there. And I muted it. The person that ended up picking it up couldn't hear anything because Terry had cursed armor that made it so that he couldn't hear his intelligent weapon anymore. Okay. So you don't, you just don't like intelligent weapons. I, I don't see the purpose in it. Like, why am I adding an NPC that I've got to come up with like sword based puns for by the fifth or sixth session? I'm out of jokes. This is no longer funny and it's either going to be cursed and so they're going to want to get rid of it. And well, at which point this is just a blip. Yeah. Right? Or it's not cursed and it's a beloved companion. I'd rather have a companion that has agency. Uh, yes. I, I just don't understand what an intelligent weapon wants. What the shit is... Like, oh, I have intelligence. What am I going to do? I gave Mieka an intelligent um, uh, amulet in her campaign, the solo yeah. shot. And it was a locket. And it kept being like, hey, you know what? Close me. I don't want to see this. Right? Or I don't want to be a part of this. Or she would go back at the end of the night and say, okay, so what did you think? And have a little counselor to, t- to speak yeah, to. Yeah. Because she was playing a solo campaign. So it had the ability to come in and out as necessary. Um, but was there to hear always. But whether or not I could see was whether or not it was open. I use that as a tool for a solo campaign. But I don't need to do that in a regular campaign. So I don't use them. I, I 
have had one, and I've mentioned him on the podcast before, I have had one intelligent item in every single one of my campaigns I've run for years, and that's Tetanus. Tetanus is a rusted out greatsword that his first iteration was in the Temple of Elemental Evil, Mm -hmm. um, which was that 3.5 module way back when. And there's this large obelisk at the bottom of it is just a bunch of decayed stuff. And I mistakenly being out like one of the first, I was a new DM. It was maybe the one of the first times I've ever run was like, Oh yeah, that great sword's magical. And they go, well, what's the magic? And I'm like, it talks to you. And they're like, but it's rusted. Is this thing going to work? I'm like, yes. Right. And like, it was, it was, Talking out my ass, DMing at mm-hmm. its best, and since then, man, I've I've really developed its lore, its its flavor. It's a very evil sword that wants to see decay. When he does come into the campaign, he is a major driver and incredibly subtle because decay is a subtle thing, right? So I I play the long game with tetanus. I don't play, but again, I can hit that in other ways. I no, like no. I just I, that's cool. I like that. I'm not going to put it into my game. I'm looking at political intrigue and the, the sword with an attitude problem or the shield with a funny voice or the helmet that gives you a plus one intelligence goes, well, actually, every single time, <laughs> right? Funny for a bit. And then at that point, I feel like I'm just playing a DMPC. Yeah. Right. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to. I'm DMing. It, the spotlight's not on me. It's on everybody else. No. And if I'm taking even 6% of a session out to do wacky voice of this guy over here, we're not hitting plot points or NPCs unless, or exploration. Unless you or, very intentionally make the sword part of the plot, right? And 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 I just don't. I tend not to focus on magic items as a general rule because I'll do a whole lot of low magic items and intelligent weapons and items tend to be very, very high, high magic. Yeah. So, I, yeah. And again, it's just not my style. If I was playing a comedy campaign, especially one shots, I'm more likely to do that. I'm always so goddamn cranky because I'm fucking busy and I'm tired. Fucking shank a bitch for a goddamn slice of real pizza. Oh, did I send you a picture of what we had for lunch? I will fucking kill you. Oh, no, no. No, hold on. You say real pizza. This was not real pizza. Oh! That's the uh, that's the low carb. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really good. Uh huh. That's how that's how Shannon and I really like doing it. We also make our own dough when we are feeling particularly ambitious. But you complain about not having any time, and then you tell me about all this cool shit that you do, and I'm like, Dan, fuck off. You got time. What are you talking about? I make my own pizza dough. Second thick. It doesn't take long, and like I said, well, then you're not sucking properly. Or am I sucking well? Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. <laughs> okay, you're done. Get it. <laughs>